is the 60/40 portfolio dead? And I've done that, and it's, yep. it's it, it looks dead to me. <laughs> it yeah. looks, and I don't mean to say that everybody should jump out of their 60/40 portfolio by no means, but it, it looks like the thesis that is built upon is at the very least very safe. All right, folks, welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today I'm speaking with Darcy Angaro. Darcy is the host of the Everyday Investor podcast, and he advises clients in a range of financial matters from mortgages all the way to Bitcoin. In this conversation, Darcy and I broadly cover financial advice in the age of digital assets, such as the newly launched Bitcoin ETF and various strategies to modernize that dusty portfolio. Other topics we touch on include digital scarcity, property, and diversification. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Darcy Angaro. I mean, speaking of social media, I've like mm. been sort of watching you and your podcast yeah. come up for a while now. As oh, yeah, you yeah. Go through the iterations of, of doing it and yeah. and particularly having more and more crypto content. Like yeah, probably a bit more. Yeah. How's that? How's that? been for you when did you when did you first find out about bitcoin or whatever it was that sparked your interest so if we go back to 2017 it would have been early on in the podcast that would have been when i was figuring out who could i have on this week and i can't remember who it would have been somebody would have recommended oh you should talk to this guy yeah about bitcoin and so that that was the the start of it so at the very early stage of the podcast was also the very early stage of my Awakening, where so I caught up with Sam Blackmore, who headed up my Bitcoin Saver, which was later Vimba, and now is no longer. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So I caught up with him, and that was like the it was well the conversation was good, but so I could kind of vaguely hold my own and have a conversation with him, I had to do like minimum viable research on that, <laughs> which was I think at the time it would have been just understanding that it was finite supply and just how the technology worked a little bit. That's all I could kind of get my head around. Yeah. And then having a conversation with him, it helped kind of ease my concerns that it was a bit of a, a joke or scam or just vaporware, I think is what I used to call it back then. And I just, I think probably shortly after that, I started dollar costing into it. And then as I put more money into it, Funnily enough, where your money goes, your attention goes after yeah. a while, and you start to actually do a bit of learning. I'm so. such a firm believer of you got to you got to put down some money, you got to put down some yeah. skin in the game, and so I recommend my students my students do it as well as uh, as a like cost of their education, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, don't speculate on meme coins, but if you want to do that too, do that. But like, yeah. you got to. And just doing that will make you go through the process and yeah. start to have it solidify. But like yeah. at, with the finite supply piece, like with your more traditional background, was that more sort of like obvious to grasp the implications that of was. for you? Yeah. Yeah, because I probably had a bias as a financial advisor towards property because I started out as a mortgage advisor, first and foremost, back in the day. And so I was quite comfortable with property. And I understood that if you can get like if you could own a home, which was fee simple on its own title, it wasn't cross-leased, it wasn't, you know, an apartment with thousands and thousands in the same area, then you're probably more likely to get appreciation of price because it was a, a clear title, I guess you could say. And I mean that in a pretty loose way. But it was kind of like high-quality title, a, a share of finite real estate over this 
two-dimensional plane on this earth so how finite is that well you just take the earth and it's, you know, there's only so yeah. much of that apart from going up and so that was kind of how i probably started to bridge that gap between finite digital scarcity and finite physical scarcity and i think then it was about trusting that the mathematics like i, I, I just managed it to get the idea in my head that it was just a line of code hanging in the internet and it was contained, it was finite. And it was just the fact that everybody was plugged into that that kind of made it valuable and the fact that it, it worked because it was just simple and it was mathematics. And so those two things in my mind helped me to kind of reconcile the fact that it's, it's, it's almost just the same as digit, sorry, it's almost just the same as physical scarcity. Yeah, so would you, would you still make that link today, like property compared to, even though it's digital compared to yeah. Bitcoin? Yeah, in the sense of scarcity, yes. Yeah. Like when you're thinking about, because when you're thinking about investing, you're kind of thinking, and everybody thinks about it differently, right? But you're kind of thinking about it in terms of, will someone pay more for this in the future? That's the capital gains part. And then will this generate cash flow? And so property has both of those characteristics, but a lot of people who are into property whether they admit it or not is another thing, will actually be owning property because of the scarcity element, because number go up, not because it generates great cash flow. And so that's not too far away from Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? And so, again, there's, there's a lot of parallels, but there's also a lot of weird tensions in how they're different. And we'll just get into that. I mean, yeah, there, there's heaps of other adjacent stuff that also have to go well mm. for, this, for this thing to last. Like the, for me, it was... Digital scarcity, at first, I was like, oh, this is wild. We haven't seen this before. And if we figure out how to do it, then that's going to change a lot. The money thing came came second because I wasn't yet, right. I wasn't yet, you know, studied up on all of this inflation business. I had like yeah. halfway got there. Yeah, and, right. and the idea of like digital scarcity, but that also means like finite money supply. That and I'm still like working, working through that and like trying to parse it when I like read news and financial news and things like this. Yeah. So you understood the scarcity element first before you understood it in the context of historically what money was and what money is changing to become. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah, I, I was definitely, yeah, I was definitely tech, technical focus first. Yeah. And then linking that to the, you know, obviously study of money or the study, you know, of humans in society. Uh, it's a big, big, broad topic, but, you know, digital scarcity, you can kind of wrap your mind around, well, Satoshi did it in nine pages or whatever. Yeah. Without, I don't think, too much study, you can wrap your mind around that idea. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we all have our different gateways, right? And that's probably part of the fun is that you could be a, I guess you could be an anarchist um, and, and really gel with this. You could, you could be probably like a, a socialist as well if you really wanted to be. Um, we'll pray for you. But yeah, you, you could be like that if, yep. you, if you wanted to. Uh, and you could find an entrance point or you could be a, um, a historian, you could be a technologist, you could be an investor, you could be a speculator. All these different interests can trigger an entry point into it. But like there really is something for everyone. Um, and that's why I think it, it's an everyday asset for everyday people. Your uh, background, you said, was in mortgages yep. and financial... Planning or advice. So what is it that Angaro and Co. does? What do you do, Darcy? Yeah. Okay. So if we start with uh, the business Angaro and Co., it's a boutique financial advice business where I'll arrange mortgages. I still do that today. So I, I am a mortgage advisor 
first and foremost, but we also do insurance, KiwiSaver investments, and the other part of the business that I'm quite involved in is the what I would probably call iterative financial planning where or financial strategy. And that's where it's not like taxation and like intricate forecasting and a lot of science. It's strategy. It's higher up. What are we trying to to do here? Like, what are your goals and why do you have those goals? And what kind of tools are we going to use to reach those goals? And so when I usually meet with somebody for the first time, that's what I'm doing is I'm doing a session where I'll charge them a fee for my time, not selling anything at all. Right. And we just talk about what it is they're trying to achieve and what are the tools at their disposal that they can understand and they can work with to achieve it. So it's kind of like, if you can imagine over the last uh, five years in particular, a lot of people have been getting easier access to the tools of investing. Sharesies, Hatch. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, um, Very easy access, yeah. Super, super, right? So we all have the tools, but we haven't yet figured out what we're building. And so there's this huge gap in the financial advice community to serve the people that actually need advice, but they're really quite competent and quite able to do it on their own. So those who can implement themselves often don't have anybody to help them with direction or design. And that's where someone like myself comes in. Uh, there are certified financial planners, which I'm not, who would go into like an extreme level of detail and be technically very, very spot on. But often that level of detail is lost or not really fully appreciated by people that are doing it themselves and just want to make a little bit of progress every year. And then there are financial advisors who will design and implement an entire investment portfolio and charge a fee based on what you're investing through them and do reviews and stuff like that. But the whole business model around that is to effectively sell an investment plan for you and implement it for you. Again, what happens if you, the investor, wants to do it yourself? And what happens if you want to use tools that that financial advisor doesn't have access to, like Bitcoin, or like property even? A lot of financial advisors won't be that interested in helping hardcore property investors out because that's not their revenue model. And that's this weird sort of embedded problem in, in the financial advice ecosystem is that the it's advice- like misaligned incentives there. Absolutely, yeah. And so that's all I've tried to do in my practice is create a model. So I'm very different from most financial advisors. It's, and it's not necessarily a good thing. It's, it's, it's way harder, but there's this need there, huge gap where I'm just trying to align the incentives better so that I'm just being rewarded for my time, giving me the best answer I possibly can. And if you see value in going further and you want to engage me to implement some stuff, that's great, but this isn't a sales pitch. This is right. just, I'm giving you the best advice. You're not signing up clients for some subscription model where you take a fee every year. No, like that would be a great idea. And I've, we're, like, I've tried to figure that out. Yeah. But with the research that I've done with my client base, that there's actually no, well, with the people I'm dealing with now anyway, there's no demand for subscription-based type of on-demand yeah. advice. There are with some people. So it's kind of like you got to, how, how old are these out. people generally to generalize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About 35 to 54 would be about 80% of my clients. All right. So I talk primarily to those in the building up phase in their life, or I call them the upgraders. They, they may be getting their first home, or chances are they're selling their first home, buying the next one, maybe popping out some children, 
setting up KiwiSaver for the kids, doing their insurances, thinking about, well, we've got way more extra income. What do we do with it? Do we buy another property, pay down our debt? Which one's better? And if we don't do property, what should we be investing in and how should we structure that? That's kind of the conversation. Lots of grown-up stuff there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, not the way I do it. I'm, I'm not very grown-up in how I approach it, trust <laughs> me. But yeah, that's the idea. Or like uh, lot, lots of DIY stuff, yeah. but I could see a lot of potential also for getting burnt your first time if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, I think, hey, take crypto as an example, right? Like, I don't know how much you've lost, if, if you have lost anything, but I know I've, I've lost a little bit just by doing really dumb stuff like sending crypto to the wrong address on the wrong chain. Yeah, that's a good um, one. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and trusting that platforms like, say, Celsius are, are great platforms to use. Right. Because they'll give you a return on your assets and, and your, your assets are safe there. Um, so, yeah, little little things like that. that you, you do learn that. But I guess if you have a bit of advice, a bit of structure around what you're trying to achieve, then you're probably less likely to make mistakes. That's kind of the idea. With um, with yourself or with a more traditional advisor, where do you see the responsibility lying? For example, if um, you know I'm seeking advice, what to, was the example you gave? Pay down some debt or reinvest, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not happy with that advice. Uh, you know, where's the responsibility, and is that different from a uh, someone that's going to take your money and invest it for you and show you how it goes once mm. a year or once a quarter. Mm. I think I understand what you're saying. So you're saying, uh, how does it work from a responsibility point of view? Like in terms of if you're not actually... Yeah, like are you more disengaged from from that since you're mm. sort of enabling folks to, to do it? Mm. Um, and And then on the other hand, like in your peer circles or your professional circles, right? Um, how, how does that work with res being responsible for someone's money, right? Or almost like a custodian sense. Mm. So the way that I deliver advice in the in investing side isn't how some advisors would work, which is referred to in New Zealand anyway as a discretionary investment management service or DIMS, where the advisor is taking that money and investing it on their behalf. The way that I work is, is I'm basically providing a coaching service for self-directed DIY investors to help them make better yep. decisions. And so I submit myself to the same level of regulation, well, like any financial advisor has to really, but it's probably over the top in terms of the process that I follow in delivering the advice because I'm not actually making any specific recommendations. I just will describe the types of investments and the characteristics of those investments that they may want to consider um, from a portfolio perspective, and then it's up to them to do the due diligence on the actual investments that are right for them based yeah. on fees, taxes, jurisdictions, all that sort of stuff. So they put it together, they implement it, and I'm like a sounding board. And so I have to be quite careful to make sure that I'm not saying, hey, you should be acquiring the S&P 500 to 80% and then 15% in emerging markets. I'll, I'll talk about emerging markets, but I won't talk about the actual ETF they might want to get for that okay. because then I'm crossing the line around how I uh, my business model works because I'm not actually implementing that for them. Like, Why is financial advice so hard? 
You listen to people on the radio and they're like, I can't give you advice. I know. Well, even you, even you watch people even on YouTube and they're like, not financial. Uh, hilarious, right? Like yeah. that a YouTuber is saying not financial. Like, why is it so hard? Why am I watching you then? <laughs> I thought that's what this is. Well, uh, and, and the irony is, is often those YouTubers not giving financial advice are probably giving a higher level of financial advice than their financial advisor is, who's really just implementing a financial product. And that's the weird thing is yeah. that we're regulated backwards. It doesn't make any sense. We're encouraged to give information. We're discouraged from giving advice, okay. which is information applied That's to someone's specifics. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So if I knew everything about you, I would curate the answer according to your specific situation. So when I'm on my podcast and I'm talking about some sort of concept and what I would do, I'm just referencing this general nebulous of people, this of course, aggregate yeah. people, right? <laughs> or or I, I'm even just thinking about myself. Um, because I can't, I don't know who I'm talking to. So of course, it's, it's not technically financial advice because I don't know anybody's personal circumstances, but there might be somebody out there that that is listening to me. So does that become financial advice because I know their situation and I'm talking about something like, it, it's a really hard one, right? Yeah. And so, but yeah, when, when crypto comes into it, like the way that I've approached it in my firm, because I've been talking about it for quite a long time with my clients, even though I haven't been, again, I haven't been selling any Bitcoin products to my clients, so I haven't been, you know, recommending a specific product that has Bitcoin contained in it. But I have talked to people about what Bitcoin is, how it works, how it might help within their portfolio of other mainstream investments, and kind of talked about a framework that I've used myself and that they could take and modify for themselves, and that helps them to actually go forward with it. So that's kind of like the best that I can do in the best practice way that I know how, because there's no rules. It's kind of like the SEC regulation by enforcement, do it first and we'll punish you later for doing it wrong. Yeah, It's the same sort of thing in most parts of how we're regulated as financial advisors as well when it comes to Bitcoin, because are we allowed to talk about it? And if we do talk about it, how do we charge for it? Are we allowed to? Or are we recommending something that is like really bad for people? That was what I used to think at the very start. Like, is this and that's why I was quite careful to stick just with Bitcoin, because that was the only thing that I could say with certainty that I I understood very well as soon as we got into Ethereum and the other ones. While I understood it, it was just a little bit beyond me. But yeah, as long as I understood it really well, I subscribed to all the best practice ways of delivering that advice. Well, it's surely better than just saying, hey, go watch YouTube and figure it out yourself. Yeah. Like that's not really that responsible. And that's not actually helping people build their wealth. That's abdicating their responsibilities, kind of like what you were applying before, right? So do people broach this issue with you up front or now is it like, People know your sort of media personality and they know that you're knowledgeable about it. And it's a secret handshake. So yeah. then they come to you. <laughs> they have to know the secret knock on the door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little bit. So people. Is will... interest growing? Yeah, well, it's, it's, so interest is highly correlated to where we're at in the Bitcoin cycle. Ah. Right? Which is really interesting. So I offer, I offer an option for people to pay my fees in Bitcoin. And usually at the um, kind of like the, the peak of the market when things are actually starting to come down, people are more than happy to offload their sats to me and pay my invoices at the peak of the market. Um, people are more than happy to engage me and figure out how to do it when the price is really high. But when the price has been really low, like over the last, I guess, what, 18 months in particular, um, crickets. Okay. No, one, no one wants to build when it's the best time to build. They want to do it when it's expensive and everyone else is doing it. And I'm being a bit cynical, but it's it's true, right? 
like sentiment picks up when yeah. sentiment picks Psychology up. Psychology is so hard when you look at that chart and you're like, oh my goodness, what's next? Yeah. So people will ask me because they know that that's kind of what I do is, is just help people on the strategy side. And they'll ask me because, yeah, like a lot of people do come to me through the media stuff, but also my existing clients, because I have been talking about it for quite a long time. So it'll be out there in the newsletters that they get. And when I'm doing reviews with them, I'll, I'll, I'll try to sort of carefully broach the topic with them in terms of just, hey, what, what is your investment strategy? You've got your property, you're paying down debt. You've got your KiwiSaver, fantastic. You've got a shares as account I can see. That's cool. What other types of investments have you thought about? And eventually, yeah, it might come around and then we have a discussion about it and then there you go. Um, so there's this financial portfolio stock standard thing called a 60-40 split. Yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, so a 60-40 split, it's uh, it's interesting because like these uh, these phrases are kind of thrown out there and everybody is supposed to know what they mean. Yeah. Uh, but what it means is 60% of what you invest in would be growth assets, 40% would be income assets. Growth assets are things that you can invest in like shares and companies that will likely grow in value. Income assets would be investments that will spin off cash flow. Typically, they would be bonds or bond funds where you're getting fixed payments coming in. And so the idea between 60-40, that's, that's called a balanced portfolio, is that you get the opportunity for good growth in the overall portfolio of investments with the moderating action, the stability of boring bonds that just okay. pay a fixed amount coming in. And in theory, the value of your bond portfolio will be negatively correlated to the value of your equities portfolio or your growth portfolio, which means that if one goes up in value, the other one might lag behind. But the beauty is if one goes down, the other one boosts up. And so it has the overall combined effect of just mellowing out the ups and downs as we go through the different cycles in the market. And why it's useful is that if people have a shorter period of time or a short time frame between when they want to invest the money and when they want to use the money, like say if somebody was investing for seven to 15 years, for argument's sake, they might think about getting a balanced portfolio of 60-40 because when they cash that in, they don't want to take too much of a chance that it's worth less than what it was at the start. Um, whereas at the start when they're investing, they might do something more like an 80-20, 80% growth, 20% income, and then swap it down to 60-40 and then go conservative, which is 40-60. Yeah. And so that's kind of... A, in my Kiwi Saver fund, I can see these options and they describe it just like that. There you go. Yeah. And so the fun part comes when you start to do a bit more research around, well, anyone can Google this, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? And I've done that, and it's, yep. it's, it, it looks dead to me. <laughs> it <Yeah>. looks, <laughs> and I don't mean to say that everybody should jump out of their 60-40 portfolio by no means, but it, it looks like the thesis that it's built upon is at the very least very sick. And it's just that everything seems to be correlated at the moment. Um, so like if interest rates went sky high and interest rates actually were going to stay higher for a longer period of time, instead of lower and sooner like the market is expecting right now, yes, then that's going to pull the growth assets down, the equities, and it will also pull down the bond fund because people can get a better interest rate out there in the, in the market versus the bonds that they're attached to. So that bond portfolio goes down as well. 
So it's that's supposed why, to go up though, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's why this this um, negative correlation, this diversif diversification that should exist within these portfolios, it isn't really functioning the way that maybe it used to in the past. And again, and by the past, are we talking twenty years, forty years ago? Forty years. Yeah. 40 so years. since nineteen eighty, we've had this glorious period of steadily declining interest rates with each cycle. So, yeah, you have your peaks and troughs, seven, 10 years roughly, but they've always kind of gone lower and lower and lower. And what's really interesting at this period of time is that we might might be either at a continuation where it just keeps on, you know, folding the bit of paper half and half forever, or a reversal of that 40-year trend, um, which is interesting. But if, if we look at that, the reason why bonds have been performing really well over the past 40 years, more or less, is that interest rates have been getting lower and lower and lower, which means that if you can lock, it's kind of like getting a fixed rate mortgage where you know what your, your rate's going to be for the long term, and then interest rates go up. It's the opposite. When you're investing in bonds, you're locking in that rate of return, hopefully for a period of time. And in a falling interest rate environment, people will pay a premium for those bonds that are paying a higher rate. Yeah, because they're they're guaranteed ish for a period of time. So that's why over the past forty years, it it's caught a bit of a, a tailwind, and and the property markets taken off, and equities have taken off. So where we're at right now is that we're kind of bumbling along in this weird transitory space, and it doesn't feel like the science would support a sixty forty portfolio in the same way. Um, again, don't jump out of a 60-40 portfolio if someone else has told you that that's what you should be <laughs> in because I'm just providing probably a, a color to this that most traditional advisors won't provide because, again, it's, it's not within their revenue model. And what I'm alluding to is that, in my view, and this, is again, is just my opinion, there's other types of substitutes for the 40% that might be more appropriate. Like you might not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but maybe things like gold, um, Bitcoin, absolutely. Even maybe dividend funds. So that just means investments that spin off a lot of profit. Like these are investments in companies that generate a lot of cash flow. And so they don't go up in value necessarily that excitingly, but they give you a good amount of cash flow. So those could be good little proxies. Even just cash might might be a, a better substitute than than bonds. Maybe, so, but you'd be you'd be removing some income generating stuff for some gold or some Bitcoin. Yeah, which doesn't generate incomes. Well, not same with cash, right? Well, at least with cash, often they're they're in facilities that do generate some interest if it's revenue. In an account, okay. Yeah, so it, it is a very it is controversial, and I yeah. think if any financial advisor was listening to this, they would take issue with a lot of what I just said over the last 10 to 20 minutes. But, <laughs> so, I mean, like, but that's, that's kind of what I do though, is, is provide the other perspective so that people can think for themselves. If 60-40, if the split has been around for that long and probably went back further than 1980 as well, right? Like yep. in modern times, we should update our models. You know, we should update our priors if we're looking at the current climate. Uh, and so I think, I haven't done a lot of looking into this, but I've seen some people talking about like these older financial models that like, yeah. you know, they worked at the time, but like let's bin them because, yeah. you know, now we, we can buy digital gold, right? And now we can buy digital Bitcoin. 
yeah. as opposed to um, sort of on-chain in your, in your wallet Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, like if the circumstances change, then change your models, right? Like, and if, if, especially if your models aren't accurately describing what's happening in reality, reality should always win, not your model, right? And so that, you're right though, like even think that there's something called the, the 4% rule, which just means that if you save up a bunch of money at time of retirement and you only ever withdraw 4%, then the returns of the portfolio will likely preserve the amount that is invested over time so that you can keep on paying yourself that 4% despite what the market fluctuations are. Um, as interest rates keep on trending towards zero, that changes the dynamics, right? And so you kind of have to think, well, is it a 4% rule? Or is it something like a 3.66% rule? I know it sounds pedantic, but that's kind of like the level of detail that some people will go. So people get anchored on these ideas and they get really stubborn around it's it as well. a good way to put it. You get anchored and, and you're like, oh, I learned that it was four. It's got to be four. Exactly. Yeah. And, and same thing with, with mainstream assets and alternative assets. If it's an alternative asset, it's just purely speculative. You put the money in, you're expecting a greater fool to come along and give you more money in the future. That must be bad. That sounds like gambling. Throw away the alternatives. Let's just talk about mainstream. Um, just funnily enough, this is where the revenue model is built as well. And the marketing engine around these passive funds, especially, it's all based on mainstream assets. Yeah. So you have to remember that the whole industry forces you into something that can be easily monetized. Um, whereas if we're in a new world, we should be thinking about new ways, new tools to build wealth, kind of like what you were suggesting before. So let's throw out some bonds um, and let's bring in some digital assets. Uh, how much and what? Yeah, cool. So the best way that, and I'll get m myself into trouble if I come across as being too explicit because everybody's circumstances are different. So for example, if you were younger, you might want to take more risk than if you were older. And more risk means more of a bet, whatever that means to you. Right. As long as you feel like you really will hang on to those riskier assets for the long term. I call it the zombie apocalypse portfolio, where effectively 80% normal, 20% weird. So the 20% would be invested in a way which banks on the fact that the world will never be the same again. And so I split that 50-50. So I put some into the old-fashioned way of hedging against some sort of financial Armageddon. That's gold, physical precious okay. metals, yep. and paper gold like GLD, which is oh, an ETF. So gold is not dead. Gold is not dead. Okay. So again, I'm going to offend everybody who's hardcore Bitcoin maxi. I know I already offend the, the gold bugs. That's easy. <laughs> and I offend all traditional mainstream financial advisors because I'm even talking about this. So everybody hates me, but... I think it makes sense because if the new world is fundamentally different from the old world, then it's probably going to be a analog world or a digital world, if I was to guess, right? Like if the great experiment or the great transformation that's happening right now goes exceedingly well, then Bitcoin to the moon, as far as I'm concerned, because if the whole world is going digital, then surely you want to get some digital asset to go with you. But if things don't go according to plan, or you're on the wrong side of whatever it is, then an analog form of that which you're relying on to protect you is also a good idea, in my view. And so for some people I know, they'd go even further. And they'd say, yeah, it's going to be a, um, an unencumbered 
which just means a, a mortgage-free parcel of land somewhere where I can grow my own food. I'm going to have energy independence, and I'm going to get my firearms license and stock up on ammunition as well. Like you can go super, right. super extreme, and that's kind of like now you really are you're prepping, right? Like you're in that mindset. Um, you don't have to be well. You don't have to be a vegetarian to try the salad. You don't have to be an extremist to think extreme thoughts, but you can still understand how people like that would think. Because in doing so, you're actually positioning according to what could become quite valuable in the future. So let's let's bring let's bring Bitcoin back in. Assume the digital version. Like if you take someone that is Bitcoin curious, how do you get them started? Sure. And maybe you can guesstimate as to how long until they have a conversation until they come back and like, all right, I yeah. I got some. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'll I'll say this to this point now, right? Because I think just with the start of this year in 2024, with the launch of the Bitcoin ETFs, things will change in terms of how I'll cover this with people. But it would start off with a conversation of, right, you're Bitcoin curious, that's good. What are the reasons why you're into this? Is it because you're interested in number go up, like you're looking for a financial gain and you're looking for the diversification that you can get from this asset, which isn't as correlated as everything else in your investments, sweet. And if you're gonna do that, then you've got some choices. You can target some KiwiSaver that has Bitcoin exposure. You could buy um, a fund here in New Zealand that gives you Bitcoin exposure. Or if you can handle the extra security steps, I'd really consider setting up your own wallet and acquire Bitcoin directly. There's also like, I guess, the picks and shovels approach too, right? Where you invest in companies like um, MicroStrategy yeah, Coinbase. and Riot and Coinbase, where you're indirectly benefiting from, so it's more like a leverage bet. But yeah, if, if people are really Bitcoin curious and they want to take the next step, I'll, I'll probably still always do this. I'll try to encourage people to consider setting up their own digital wallet first and foremost and understand just as much as they possibly can how important it is to at least with some of their assets, be their own bank, even if it is just a really pathetically small amount, um, just so that they can understand yeah. how revolutionary this technology is and how simple it is and how safe it is if they follow the steps, right? So I, I usually will cover off those basics. It will still take time for people to come around though, and it's usually when, again, when there's a bull market and they realize everybody else is doing it now and I should have done that when this guy told me about it and now it's worth 10 times as much yep. and they come back going exactly like that. Well, we should have done that and hey, no judgment, but let's get onto it now. <laughs> Better than nothing, right? Let's get started. It yeah. took me, it took me a couple months, uh, maybe three months of fairly, I would say dedicated study, but I wasn't, I wasn't dedicated. I was just like addicted to the content to trying to like figure it out. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it took me, that's a long time, right? Like. Of. It is, but you're you're coming from it from a, like an engineering and mathematical perspective, right? So you're probably fascinated by the beauty of the the design of it, right? Yeah, I was I was trying to get my mind around like why it works as a as a computer network, and then how can it how can it secure value, and then like and then that slowly all, all of the ways in sort of like snowball your own belief, yeah. um, and it's kind of like a unidirectional. Thing I find I don't, I don't find too many people that learn about it and then turn around and go no nah, it's not for me yeah it's interesting it's like a barbed 
it's like a barbed thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's Hotel California. You get it, you get in and and you're like, so far, you know, at least from our present outlook, so far it looks like the net's gonna be massively positive. And so why not? Yeah. yeah. And I think as you go through that journey of, of learning it, you would have taken a different path than, than a lot of other people would, definitely myself. But as as you as you go through that, you actually get a deeper appreciation of how traditional investments work as well. Because a lot of the fundamental drivers, like even just supply and demand and the impact on price, that can actually be applied in other areas. Things like understanding the importance of custody and the risks that you're taking when you're investing in the traditional mainstream world. Like I never would have ever considered those risks like I do now. Right. In my mind, that mainstream investing is really risky for the return that you get, in my mind, relative to something so simple as Bitcoin. I'm not, again, I'm not saying don't do it, but things like custody risk. You you buy an, an exchange-traded fund of tech stocks and whatever, you're, you don't have direct custody over those investments. You've got an account at a brokerage, um, on a brokerage platform, and there's a custodian that's being used in another country often that holds those investments on your behalf. You own a claim on that fund. So what happens if there's a systemic collapse? What happens if there's a collapse in the currency that all of those investments have to go through? That tiny little conduit that they all have to go through for you to get that back. Like that to me feels way risky for the return that you're going to get. Like it's great that you get 7% compounded on the S&P 500, but only if you got if you have absolute confidence that you can get the money back. Um, and you're going to be the last to see any money if things go really wrong and it has to go through. I mean, maybe it goes to zero, but if it has to go through the courts, you're going to be the last person to yeah. see however much value is left over on that. Yeah. And then, and that again, like crypto taught me that because of the, the collapse of the Celsius platform. I think um, you know, we might get something out of that, maybe. But just seeing how, hey, when, when you actually give your the custody of your assets over to a third party, how confident are you that you're going to get that back? And I think... It's great that most people don't understand this because then they probably wouldn't invest. Well, they wouldn't invest with the degree of confidence they need to. But again, all the more reason why you would want to have diversification and have some assets that you do hold directly. Um, the idea just on the Celsius thread there, right? You could deposit Bitcoin and a number of other platforms as well, and they would pay you some yield on it, right? But Bitcoin isn't natively yield generating. Um, so... How do you feel about Ethereum, which through the staking system is more of a natively yield generating asset? Yeah. I think it's cool. Like if you think about what we were saying before, right, with the 60-40 portfolio, let's say you had a, again, not financial advice, but 60-40 of Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example. So now you kind of have something that's resembling a sort of balanced crypto portfolio, sort of, right? 60% Bitcoin, 40% Ethereum, and, and then the Ethereum is natively yielding, like you say, right? I don't understand enough of the dynamics around how the staking works yet. Yeah. Like I understand probably more than I used to, but I still feel like there's more for me to understand around how that works. And because it's not a finite supply, there's this, like there's some tokenomics that are beyond me. It sounds pretty interesting, but I don't know, like, what do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think it's great that they're trying to turn it into this. Um, by they, I mean, like, the Ethereum community and the developers that issue issue updates and proposals. 
they're trying to turn it into this more stable money than before. I'm not I'm not a part of the view that says that ETH is money. And there's this like meme on Twitter that says that ETH is like ultrasound money, right? And yeah. and I think that's just like a marketing gimmick. I don't think people really think that their ETH should behave like money, mm. or their ether should behave behave like money. But it's nice to be able to know that there's some activity in the network that people are paying for, and that gets evenly distributed yeah. uh, to all the participants that that are around. And so I, I think that's great. W one thing that might be like you say, the tokenomics are tricky. It's it's all on the website, but it's still it doesn't mean it's easy to grasp exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and like the yeah. the way that the block works is that it's like a fee auction as well. So it's not you're not guaranteeing yourself any like bond type of sure. uh, output or or dividend, or maybe it's more like a dividend that it's not guaranteed yeah. what the output's going to be. But on the other hand, with Bitcoin, right, you could look at Bitcoin mining and you could say, yeah. well, there's my there's my income generating. Yeah asset there if I'm participating in some Bitcoin mining as opposed to just holding the ETF or holding exactly. uh, self-custodial, self-custody. So you do that with gold, like with um, gold, you might consider getting, say, GLD and GDX, and GDX is a mining ETF, same sort of concept. So you still have, you have something that gives you a, um, a stake in a fund that has exposure to gold, so you're benefiting from the price movement of gold, but you also have units in a fund which is getting revenue from the mining activity. So it's probably the same thing as having like a, a blend between a Bitcoin spot ETF, for example, and maybe Riot or another mining company like that, right? Um, yeah, I, I wonder what with the GLD and the GLX, like the correlation there between market price and the GL, is it X that's the mining one? Yeah, GDX, yeah. Um, yeah. GDX, um, I'd, I'd be keen to look at that and see how that how that looks together. Certainly, certainly, I mean, the, the trend in the last few years, everything's sort of been in lockstep, right? Post, yeah. post COVID, yeah. uh, crypto has not been able to break away from, from the American indices. Yeah. Um, perhaps a little bit the last couple of months. Have you seen that or? Thinking the same thing. Yeah, but I'm, I'm probably hopeful to to uh, <laughs> my my kind of view around Bitcoin in particular is that I, I still feel like it's a safe haven. It's not a speculative play. It shouldn't be aligned with triple Q. Like it shouldn't be aligned with tech stocks. Yep. But it seems like it is because the market, <laughs> regardless of what I believe and what some people believe, the market still feels it's a high risk speculative asset. And therefore, it treats it similar to high-risk tech stocks, right? But the reason why I hold it would be because I probably more adopt an extremist view on this as to why I hold it, which is a hedge against the status quo failure. Yep. And so that way, that, that in my mind, I think, well, the price for Bitcoin will really go insane if and when there's some day of reckoning with the current financial system combined with more of a digital evolution in how we transact with each other. That kind of feels quite simple in my mind. So that feels like a safe haven because I want to be in the the box which is likely to get the most attention if that happens. And that feels like that's, that's Bitcoin right there. So Bitcoin ETF is live. Yeah. Um, by ETF, we mean the American ETF. Bitcoin ETFs have been live elsewhere for a long time. 
but of course, America runs the world, right? What are you talking about? I thought it was lizard people that ran the world, yes. Oh, uh, no, but they're inside the earth, oh, right, right, right. right. Okay. They enough. can't actually run up here. So does this change how things are? For I'll, I'll give you a little bit of color here. Um, just in my feed, I can see that in sharesies now, you can, you know, purchase four or five, I don't know the number, you can purchase directly through my Sharesies app. And hatch, I, yeah. Um, I can purchase some Bitcoin of the ETF variety in America. Yeah. Um, is this a game changer? It feels like buying drugs off grandma though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you're, you're getting weed off grandma. Through the, yeah, through nice safe wrapper, you know, it's got nice, Pink yeah. colors and it's been it's been well designed as yeah. opposed to it's approved by the SEC. You know it's legit. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, like it it feels like. Um, so I, I I did that myself on on my own hatch account. I jumped on there and um, just wanted to see. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely works. It works. I previously had some exposure in I think it's BITO, which is the ProShares Bitcoin Futures ETF, yep. which simulates the same thing, but it's not because they're just using derivatives to create the same sort of thing in terms of price of movement, but it's not very efficient. So this Bitcoin spot ETF, what's so cool about that is that these ETFs are actually grabbing that from the market and they actually own it. And um, we can actually see where it is, which is pretty cool. So we know it's actually there, which is sometimes better than some of the gold ETFs. Okay. So a lot of unallocated gold ETFs exist, which means that really have the transparency. You can't see the vault. Whereas with these Bitcoin ETFs, there that is a possibility. So, um, sorry, I forgot what your question was. I, I don't. Know, I don't know what it was either. But um, oh, what do you think of the criticism that you don't own Bitcoin if you own the ETF? Yeah, I've been listening. A lot. Like, there's somebody on X that I follow, Fred Krueger. Do you ever follow? Sure, I've seen. He's been a big ETF guy. Yeah, Doc yeah. Krueger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he's been um, like a lot more open-minded to any any cops a bit of flack for actually coming out and saying, hey, this is this is good. The reason, like, there's reasons why I like it, reasons why I hate it. The reasons why I personally like it is because I know that the reason, like we talked about before, that a lot of people don't get into crypto or Bitcoin specifically when, when I talk to them in an advice session is usually down to the complexity associated with the custody. Almost always. I have to download a wallet. I have to sort out my passphrases really carefully. And then I have to set up an account with a crypto retailer, like Easy Crypto here in New Zealand, right? Um, I've done that myself. I've done it for others before. It doesn't feel like a difficult thing in, in my headspace. But at the start, it was. So I acknowledge that it, it is quite a big step. So the reason why I like the ETF is I know that's not an issue. Like almost half of my clients will have an account with Hatch or Sharesies, the two okay. most popular platforms in New Zealand, um, and then increasingly stake as well. So there's these platforms where you can access these ETFs now. And I know that if people get the idea around how and why Bitcoin will increase or decrease in price, then I know that there's nothing really in the way for them to actually execute that call and to, and to own some Bitcoin. It's kind of like you're getting there. You're not fully there in my mind. You know, you're not a legit Bitcoiner in my mind, though, unless oh, you, so lazy. you own it. <laughs> yeah. Like, but, but again, uh, why, why is it that we own Bitcoin, right? Like I know to a certain extent for a lot of people, it will be because 
they want to get more fiat currency at some stage in the future, regardless of whether they'll limit it or not. That's kind of what it is. And if you have a fiat-based mortgage, then, hey, there's a great strategy. Just wait for Bitcoin to go to a billion dollars and then pay off the mortgage. Right. So, of course, we all probably want number go up to a certain extent. But you're really kind of you're missing out on so much of the goodness that Bitcoin can offer. Um, you might as well go full spectrum and own at least some of it. In my mind, I, I, I would think about this like at least 80% of it. I'd want to own, own it directly, diversified over several wallets with really solid backup in terms of this, the, the keys. And maybe only 20% in my world, and I don't have that much on, um, on these, these funds yet. But the idea about the funds is that you now have a tax-efficient way to rebalance your portfolio. Because for me, in my, my own zombie apocalypse portfolio, where it's 80% mainstream, 10% physical precious metals, 10% Bitcoin, I don't want to sell my Bitcoin on my wallets because I'm effectively just creating taxable events willy-nilly. Whereas if I'm owning them through funds, then the tax obligations are a little bit more favorable, which allows yep. me to do these rebalancing. So I'm staying within the 10% lane. Yeah, that I mean, and this is what uh, Fred Krueger talks about a lot too. He's like, he's like, rich guys like me, we don't want to, we don't want to bother with all of that, all of the dirty bits of the revolution. We're just going to profit right. on it. <laughs> the dirty bits of the revolution. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, um, but I, so, do you think that? The option to purchase it through an ETF is going to lead to this like slack investing where whereby people aren't going to understand or appreciate why it goes up or down. And yeah. to a certain extent, they're not even going to care. Yeah, I think so. And I think we'll see. So I, I, I feel and again, I could be wrong. This is this is just my perspective. I feel like there'll, there'll be more volatility, at least on the ETF side, in terms of when the market runs up, people will probably flock towards these ETFs really fast. And likewise, if there's a market correction, even if it has nothing to do with Bitcoins, the part that really bothers me, if there's a market correction because just some sort of systemic failure, there's war, just a recession, stuff happens, there's a drawdown in any market, then Bitcoin suffers as well because it's People are going to be selling everything on their platforms if they need the money and they need to get out or they're getting scared. They're not going to actually think about, hey, Bitcoin is actually highly, highly risky asset here because we're still early days. Therefore, I should hold on to it for a long time. They don't think like that. Usually with most retail people, they're, they'll do the opposite. They'll actually sell their higher risk speculative bets first rather than hang on to them for the longest and they never see the benefit. So that's, that's what I'm concerned about is that these ETFs will burn a lot of retail investors who don't fully understand how Bitcoin works right. and that it should be considered a long-term investment, not a speculative bet. It should actually be a serious, long-term, legitimate investment. Well, that's, I guess, maybe where an advisor comes in and says, like, do not unload that Bitcoin. What do you think of the idea of, like, rebalancing your portfolio, but then, like, you've got this highly speculative thing that blows up do you still sell and re and rebalance whether it's Bitcoin or something else, yeah. or like you know the the Bitcoiners they'll tell you that like diversification is bullshit. Yeah, uh, and that um, when it blows up, that is your new balance of your por portfolio. Yeah, that's a really good question, and it speaks to the tension between those two schools of thought: concentration, diversification. Um, the way I kind of reconcile this is a diverse centration. 
where you, and I, I usually refer to it as a core satellite portfolio where, you, where you, you will have diversification going on, but you'll also have pockets of concentration. So you get the benefit of whatever the average return is available in the market using science and portfolio theory, but then you have a small amount of what you have to invest in concentrated plays that you personally back and believe, like individual companies that you really get and understand or Bitcoin or an investment property portfolio. Those could yep. be your concentrated plays. Um, so, yeah, if you were a Bitcoin maxi or even just a high-risk investor, right? Your Bitcoin, 10, 10% Bitcoin allocation goes up to like 80% of your overall portfolio, right? Let's say something like that happens. In, in my mind, I really value the strategy. Like I really believe that if you can get a strategy that you've done some work on, you shouldn't be changing the rules or you shouldn't be changing your strategy based on changing circumstances, whether it's good or bad. Because why did you do the strategy at the beginning, yeah. right? Like, why did you actually set out to have a game plan if you're just going to change it when the share market tanks or when it blows up in a good way? And so for me personally, if my 10% turns into 20%, yeah, I'm going to be rebalancing. And I'm going to be rotating yep. out of Bitcoin. And I know that's going to really offend the Bitcoin maxes <laughs> out there. I'm sorry. Um, like, I, I believe in it, but I also believe in mainstream investing too. Um, and that's, that is really hard to believe in things that are sometimes quite contrarian. Yeah. Part of human nature is being able to hold contradictory ideas and not have one completely mm. mobilize the other side. That's hard, and, eh? Yeah, it, it is hard, but then you got to, it's not even about justifying your actions, right? But you're going to have to have some actions sometimes. Yeah. That, and that's, that's why, like, this is for me, 80, 10, 10, 80, 20, 80% of the time, I think mainstream. Only 10% of the time, I'm thinking like I'm a hardcore Bitcoin fundamentalist extremist. Um, but that's only, but, so <laughs> I'm I extreme 10% of the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's what I say to people I meet um, for the first time as well. But, and I don't, it doesn't come across that way because the other part of what I do, especially on the podcast stuff, is I talk about the things that no one else is really talking about um, because I kind of feel like there's these little voids in the conversation because no one goes there. And so I pick up on that and that's what I talk about. And so if, if financial advisors are not pulling their weight in this space, I'm more vocal on it. And I don't care if I'm right. I don't have to be right. I just want to make sure that people start talking about it because they're not. Um, doesn't mean that I don't value mainstream investing. I love it. That's pretty much what I'm building up most of the time. But I don't talk about it as much on my podcast because I don't feel like like I feel like other people do a better job of it, to be honest, but oh, yeah. I don't feel like it is needed. Um, tangent here. Uh, what's You've had a few um, podcasts, a few shows lately talking about property in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, is our like New Zealand property market like in danger of, uh, we sort of, we've ha we had a, a dip a little while ago and I'm making this up on the fly. I don't really know Good. a lot about it. Yeah, but, um, neither do I, don't we, worry. We I just make everything up like, too. We seem to be just like every other correction. We seem to be out of that dip and people are like talking about property auctions again, talking about like supply diminishing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is so deeply tied to the New Zealand persona. Yes. Of, yeah. uh, and factor in uh, record immigration this year. Um, I think it's highest we've we've ever seen since we started keeping records at the border. Yeah. Um, where are we headed with this? Mm. So... 
with property in particular, I think that, like you say, is deeply connected to our persona, right? There's something about even you and even me, right? We've come to a new country. We've, we're probably similar to a lot of New Zealanders who've been here for a bit longer, where they've come to a new country and there's a sense that you want to stake your claim. And so property is kind of comes from this conquering sort of mentality that we have where we want to expand our territory, I think, and that, that is hardwired into society here. But it's also hardwired into how the economic system works, in my view. So again, this is probably a, a view that not many would share or not many would really talk about, but I kind of, I personally believe in the credit creation theory of banking, where instead of like the intermediary theory where you put money into your savings account and that bank then lends it off to somebody else and it's okay. all kumbaya, I, I believe more that in, in the theory, and, and I, I, I call it a theory because not many straight people I talk to will will kind of put their weight behind this, but money just exists. Like when you go to the bank and you take out a mortgage, that money didn't exist before. And when you pay off your mortgage, that money just dies. When you pay your taxes, the money just dies. Of course it does because the central bank and the government are close enough to suggest that they can create money when they need to. It's not really about anything other than uh, controlling power in the economy and controlling who gets the money and who gets the influence, right? And so if we think about how property works in this environment, property is the conduit by which new currency comes into existence. And so while we as new arrivals have this ability or this desire to always want to build and take ground and everybody in New Zealand kind of does that and property is the drug of choice, the economy actually depends on that because if we weren't doing that, the supply of new credit that was entering into the economy would decrease and we would go back. dry up. Yeah. And so we're not massively into like the share market increasing, you know, it's not bad, but like in the States, it's a bit more balanced and other countries a bit more balanced here. It's really property. So we know that property has to be uh, maintained. It has to, otherwise everything just falls to bits. And so whenever there's negative stuff that goes on in New Zealand, we kind of know the playbook. We kind of know that regulators will do all they can to protect the darling of the economy. They'll lower interest rates. They'll ease the regulations with yeah. loan devaluation restrictions. They'll review the triple CFA, which restricts the amount of lending that banks can do. Um, they might implement new tools, but like the debt to income ratios that they've done recently, but ultimately, when things get nasty, they'll ease things up because they need to ensure that the act of new credit creation continues, continues to happen. That's indirectly what funds businesses as well. Like there is some bank lending directly to businesses, but really, if it wasn't for property, you wouldn't see a lot of business lending either. And so everything is built on this. Um, so what we've seen in the last 18 months has been this pullback in prices especially when you adjust it for inflation. It's been quite a big pullback in my mind. But we had a huge gain following March 2020 when the central bank decided to really stimulate, and they stimulated for too long. So we're now getting a little bit more equilibrium, and it kind of feels like we're rejoining where the natural trend line would be. So I would suggest that probably at some stage this year, we're going to see things hopefully stabilize, and interest rates will fall until the credit yep. growth starts to happen again, in my mind. And then we go around again. Yeah, then we go around again. Things get out of balance. And then credit growth happens too fast. Um, depending on the government of the day, there'll be greater or lesser cries to fix the inequality that it causes. But it's all just, it's just central planning. That's all it is. 
Uh, I think that, yeah, that's very well said. I'll have to review this and think about that, that some more. I got some rapid fire questions for you to Sweet. finish us off here. You had on your show, Peter Schiff. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Bitcoin, <laughs> speaking of Bitcoin and gold, right? Peter Schiff is famously a gold bug and he's opposed to Bitcoin, at least in his public persona. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of Peter? Yeah, I, I, I think he's a, he's a good guy in terms of um, his ability to communicate in one gigantic run on sentence is really admirable. <laughs> um, I, I, I watch his show every now and then. I get, I get it. I totally subscribe to his economics, his Austrian flavored economics. I, I totally understand that and get that. And I also kind of understand where he's coming from with his views on Bitcoin, funnily enough. And it's kind of like with what I consume in terms of media, I will purposely go out there and follow people that I really don't agree with as a way of, um, I don't know, it's kind of like when you jump in a pool, you kind of want to know how deep it is. Yeah, It's, it's like that. I, I kind of want to know where the boundaries are. And if I'm getting in over my head, what are those boundaries? And am I thinking balanced or am I just going along with what everybody else is doing, right? So yeah, like he, he was, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk about Bitcoin. Right. I, I was ready. I had my notes. I'm sure um, you were. <laughs> but yeah, no, he wanted to take the conversation elsewhere. And, and we had a really interesting conversation about his bank in Australia. So that was, that was pretty cool. Um, so a little A or B question, a few questions here. So an index fund or Bitcoin? Yeah. Which, you cho- which do, you, do you choose? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. So I put index fund in my core allocation of mainstream investing. And Bitcoin would be in my satellite or my alternative stock. Bitcoin or Bitcoin ETF? Oh, Bitcoin. Are you talking about Bitcoin in your own wallet? Yeah, self-custody yeah. Bitcoin. Self-custody Bitcoin every day. And Bitcoin or Ethereum? Bitcoin. Bitcoin, all right. Clear clear winner here, Peter, if uh, you ever hear this. That's right. I'm, I'm sure you <laughs> <he> will. <Yeah. laughs> um, Canada or New Zealand? Ooh, didn't see that one coming. New Zealand. New Zealand. And oh. not, not because I'm, I'm here and... Uh, because I know I'm, I'm here amongst other Canadians, right? So, yeah, no, I, 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 there's no way. We went back over there last summer. Yeah. And um, we had a fantastic time over there. But Canada summer or New Zealand? Canada summer. Yeah. It was phenomenal. It was am- we saw amazing parts of the country. Love it. Um, no way. No way. Like, New Zealand is the best country in the best part of the world. Why would you ever want to live anywhere else? <laughs> it's good. Uh, a good advert there. Yeah. Um, is your wife on board with... Bitcoin? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, everybody has a, everybody who has a spouse will have, financially anyway, slightly different ways that they work with their spouse. Sometimes it's equal. They, they have to understand everything equally before they make financial decisions. Um, for me, I try my very best to educate her. Um, eyes will glaze over very quickly, though, so I don't quit. I keep on trying. Yeah. It probably drives her crazy. But I think she's got to the point now where she's either too lazy to learn or she trusts me too much to care. And I have some discretion to make the financial decisions. Probably the latter after, well, you know, being in a relationship for a long time. Do you, do you find with your clients there's like a dynamic between partners? And like is it normally one partner that's like really keen to come talk to Darcy? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. There's always opposites that attract with the people that I see. Yeah. The people that have equal like characteristics and their personality and stuff like that, I never see them. And my theory is, is that those are the ones that are most volatile in terms of their own relationship and how they invest as well, because they just reinforce their own thinking. 
and they just agree with each other, which means there's no negative correlation with how they operate their household, and therefore there's no balance with how they invest either. And so when I talk to people, one of the people, at least initially, will be a total fan of me, and the other person okay. will be like a bit, who is this cult leader that my partner's been right. gravitating <laughs> towards here? And then at the end, hopefully I win them over and stuff. But otherwise, some will be looking at money differently. Some will look at money as a tool to get stuff done. Other people look at money as a source of comfort. And so how they go about getting it might be the same way, but the reasons why they want more of it are completely different. And so you get all these little nuances that come up when you meet with people. Hmm. Very good. Last question for you. Who is Satoshi? Mm. I want to say Jesus Christ because I know Jesus would be totally into Bitcoin. Um, but I don't have evidence of that. I, I, the original white paper, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Written on Dead Sea Scrolls. I, 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 wonder if, um, I wonder if Hal Finney would be probably my best guess. Um, but I heard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard recently that um, some assets moved into his wallet recently. Is that right? Uh, or it, it moved into Satoshi Nakamoto's Satoshi's wallet. Satoshi's wallet. So somebody right. who knows accidentally on purpose right. sent some coins to Satoshi's wallet. Yeah. So yeah. So those are now gone from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from circulation. They're burning it. You never know. Like I've, I've got a friend who's convinced it's, it's a CIA project. Yeah. You know, like, again, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I can give them that much credit for keeping it quiet for this long and for actually getting this far, but it, it's quite cool, right? Like it's an amazing story, this thing that just comes out of nothing and land, lands and it actually starts expanding and not evolving necessarily, but showing us what it really is rather than us deciding what it is. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Um, Darcy, thank you very much for coming by today. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain News Event Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.